It should be no surprise then that digital gold, for all its elegance, has gained such traction, or that simple price projection models which confirm our most basic biases are tracked and iterated on with such fanfare. The issue lies not with such ideas existing or even gaining popularity. All models, while flawed, serve their purpose. The purpose of these concepts is to initiate the beginning of a funnel for the mainstream audiences. To provide easily digestible analogies allows newcomers the comfort to begin wading into an immensely deep ocean. This purpose flounders, however, if their own evangelists and the community at large fails to lay the groundwork and impetus to push even deeper. As a community, we fail when, in chasing the mainstream, we lose sight of the original spirit in which Bitcoin was created and bootstrapped. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are starting Adversarial Week. The week of adversaries, we are going to get into... I've been collecting a bunch of little articles that I think have interesting points pushing back. And and where I think, you know, the whole idea, the the where bitcoin was birthed was on the cryptography mailing list in among the cypherpunks and the very heart of why bitcoin exists in the first place is adversarial thinking and as much as shinobi is trolling and as much as john Gar john carvalho is just trying to start shit i super appreciate there's there's a lot of people there's a handful of people excuse me in this space that still are very serious about the adversarial thinking they want to see you know they want to assume the worst so that we can essentially prepare for it. And and you we won't do that just by covering all the topics that show how great Bitcoin is. Right? Becoming complacent is not going to help us. It is it is not in our interest to do so. So in the spirit of adversary week or adversarial week, we are going to hear about why Bitcoin might not work, why Bitcoin is not inevitable why uh, privacy is a concern, why quantum computers should be considered, and to what degree are these things a threat? And if there are solutions, the point of adversarial thinking is so that we are the ones who figure out how to break a thing. We are the ones who figure out how to sneak through the privacy barriers. We don't we don't assume the best, we assume the worst. And if we defeat it first, well then we can also come up with a solution. We know which way Bitcoin should travel. We know which way development should go. And we know that we're not done, that this isn't about just stacking sats and waiting for Bitcoin's inevitable future. This is, this is us trying to build and direct toward that future and recognizing the real threats and the real risks in this ecosystem so anyway that is the spirit of adversarial week 
And we are starting it off on, uh, with an article by Ariel Deschapelles on Bitcoin Magazine uh, that I think does a great job of kind of laying out the big picture and why there are a handful of risks and that we should not be complacent. Um, so, uh, so we will get into it in just a second. And before we do, I just want to thank our sponsors for this show. Obviously, they are Swan Bitcoin, the best and simplest place to buy Bitcoin, to stack sats every single day, week, month, whatever you want to do, and automatically withdraw to your keys. And those keys should be safely and securely behind your hardware wallet, the Bitbox. The Bitbox hardware wallet from Shift Crypto, these guys have built an awesome little device, and I am a huge fan of it. Um, super secure and easy to use. Uh, and then lastly, I hope to see you guys at Bitcoin 2022. This conference is literally going to be insane. Um, I am so stoked. It's, it's going to be it's going to be an absolute blast. There's going to be tons of crazy, crazy announcements, um, and there's just massive amount of development and things happening. So um, I will have links in the show notes to all of these great products and services, and there will be uh, some discounts and some affiliate links and such in there as well. So you can check it out and you know save a little bit of money for listening to the show. All right, with that. It is time to get into our first article to kick off Adversarial Week from Bitcoin Magazine and Ariel Deschapelle. And it's titled Against the Inevitability of Bitcoin by Ariel Deschapelle. While many accept that the process of hyper-Bitcoinization is a given, we shouldn't be so ready to revel in our victory. Bitcoiners are optimists. When Satoshi Nakamoto wrote and released the first code that began the Bitcoin experiment, it was an inherently optimistic act in response to the economic and monetary turbulence referenced in the Genesis block. Satoshi was a cypherpunk, a group which envisioned shaping a better future through deliberate technological innovation, particularly in regards to software. Cypherpunks write code. By leveraging software, a single individual could have an outsized impact on the world and future societal outcomes. Unfortunately, however, this optimism has more recently been warped beyond recognition and become detached from the focus on actual progressive technical development. I mean to highlight and push back on this attitude of inevitability which stands in stark contrast to Bitcoin's original practical optimism. Two prominent examples come to mind. Plan B's stock-to-flow model and Michael Saylor's Bitcoin strategy and rhetoric. The Lure of Inevitability In Plan B's infamous price projection model stock-to-flow, the path to Bitcoin's dominance is charted, assured, and deterministic. Sure, the author never claims its absolute precision. After all, all intellectually honest parties will agree volatility is unavoidable in bootstrapping a new monetary system from zero. But the popular attitude around stock-to-flow and all similar models is clear. Number goes up. It's not a mystery why. With this idea as a guiding star, there's nothing to do but sit around, stack sats with any available cash flow, and wait for the prideful moment you can tell everyone, I told you so. The lure of inevitability is easy, simple, and seductive. 
While Michael Saylor has been vocally critical of the stock-to-flow model, he seems to mirror the same underlying attitude of assumed inevitability. Saylor and his firm MicroStrategy are the most famous and aggressive public buyers of Bitcoin in the world. MicroStrategy holds more than 124,391 Bitcoin, while Saylor has stated he holds 17,732 as of 2020. Yet, nearly two years into making their first public foray into Bitcoin, neither Saylor nor MicroStrategy have visibly engaged in any work to enhance the development efforts of Bitcoin or the surrounding software ecosystem to the benefit of that massive investment. Saylor's messaging in interviews is consistent, and to be sure he does an excellent job of boiling down core concepts to general audiences via apt metaphors. Digital gold is an excellent mental model for describing Bitcoin's supply cap value to a new audience, one which he leverages liberally. But as the aphorism goes, all models are wrong, some are useful. Even the usefulness of the digital gold metaphor, however, quickly collapses beyond a superficial analysis. So allowing it to shape narrative and thinking too seriously quickly becomes counterproductive. This is for the simple reason that Bitcoin isn't an inanimate rock or a static element on the periodic table. It's ever-evolving software, one that must continue to be maintained and improved on. Saylor's messaging and active investment strategy betrays the same underlying attitude behind models like S2F. The work behind Bitcoin is done, and success and growth is assured based on its static properties. Number go up. Two ways forward. The issue with this attitude is simple. The battle is not won, and not by a long shot. Suggesting otherwise, worse than creating misleading expectations, actively hampers our efforts to continue improving Bitcoin as a technology today. How can we, when a significant portion of the ecosystem, including its most prominent investor, are happy to stack sats and let a small cadre of open source developers continue to do the work of actually advancing the Bitcoin protocol? Some will take issue with this very premise and argue that Bitcoin's success is inevitable based on the strength of that technology today. Bitcoin's success, however, is not actually an all-or-nothing prospect that we can speak authoritatively about in advance. Even if we accept the argument that the success of Bitcoin as an asset due to its fixed supply and network effect is of high certainty, that does not guarantee the success of Bitcoin as a platform for a full-stack peer-to-peer financial ecosystem. It's well known that Bitcoin's base protocol layer has limited transaction throughput by design. This design choice ensures that the base layer remains as decentralized as possible, its most important property. On top of this foundation, new software tools and layers can and are being built, which increase the scalability of transaction throughput and other functions. These solutions present a wide array of differing trade-offs, 
from relatively simple and purely centralized like Cash App and exchanges, to self-custodial and largely decentralized like the Lightning Network. The latter category of solutions are intrinsically more difficult to build. So Bitcoin inevitability and the resultant complacency is simply not compatible with the community-wide effort needed to enable these solutions to win out over easier centralized alternatives. Failing to correct for this will result in the wider Bitcoin ecosystem suffering from choke points and resilience shortcomings, which can and will be easily leveraged by adversarial actors to attack the network and its participants. Potential future outcomes in this area are nuanced and uncertain, and they can ultimately only be shaped via action. We can choose to ignore this and continue to rest on our laurels, assured in a degree of limited success at best. Or we can choose to continue down the technological rabbit hole of extending self-custodial and peer-to-peer -peer solutions to as many people as possible. Against protocol ossification. The limiting factor for supporting more innovative self-custody and peer-to-peer -peer solutions on top of Bitcoin remains in the core protocol itself. To be clear, Bitcoin's core protocol is limited and focused as a deliberate design decision, which improves both scalability, unlike much more stateful alternatives like Ethereum, and attack surface. However, its current capabilities are simply not enough to support a full-stack peer-to-peer ecosystem. There are dozens of open Bitcoin development proposals, or BIPs, many of them which possess significant conceptual acts, meaning agreement with the general goal of the proposal, with work slowly underway, or worse yet, at stages of high maturity, simply waiting for adequate review, discussion, and motivation to merge. With four years elapsed between the last two significant protocol updates, SegWit and Taproot, there's surely much improvement to be made. However, complementary to the inevitable success attitude is the inevitable ossification attitude. Protocol ossification refers to when a protocol becomes so widely used that the number and diversity of stakeholders involved makes continued development of the protocol practically impossible, freezing it in place. This is, of course, ultimately an indicator of success as it speaks to the widespread dominance of that protocol. However, some will argue that ossification sooner rather than later is actually desirable as a defense against malicious changes to the Bitcoin Core protocol, a la Segwit2x. This attitude entirely ignores and greatly increases another exploitable attack vector, stalling and preventing beneficial changes to the protocol which can enable more robust peer-to-peer -peer and self-custodial solutions on subsequent layers. Indeed, after the spectacular failure of Segwit2x, any adversary would likely conclude the stalling strategy to be far more viable. In understanding that our window for beneficial protocol enhancements may in fact be rapidly closing due to the natural process of protocol ossification, and that stalling further development is arguably a much more likely attack vector 
than pushing through a deliberately malicious change. Our urgency to continue extending Bitcoin functionality today should be higher rather than lower. There is certainly no pro-Bitcoin case to hasten ossification now or in the near future, especially in the context of there being many more obviously beneficial changes and extensions to be made. Protocol ossification, like properly understood Bitcoin maximalism, isn't prescriptive, but rather descriptive. It should be noted that the argument here isn't that any shortcuts should be taken, or some arbitrarily determined schedule of soft forks be adhered to for the sake of progress. I do, however, hold that taking another four years to implement a significant extension of the core protocol would be an utter failure for the Bitcoin community, with so many compelling active VIPs and a passionate and active ecosystem of individuals and organizations there is simply no reason for it. Community discussion needs to be aggressively focused on shortening the process to develop, vet, debate, improve, and activate these proposals safely, while we still have the ability to do so. Indeed, after over 5.5 Bitcoin was organically pledged to a bounty in support of finding show-stopping bugs in BIP-119 or Check Template Verify, there does seem to be a significant community demand to do just that. Inflection Point Bitcoin has come a long way in 13 years, and as should be expected, its progress and growth has led to dramatic changes in its reach and community makeup. With this change comes an evolving landscape of discourse and ideas, and the ideas that went out will increasingly be the simplest ones which appeal to the greatest common denominator. It should be no surprise then that digital gold, for all its elegance, has gained such traction, or that simple price projection models which confirm our most basic biases are tracked and iterated on with such fanfare. The issue lies not with such ideas existing or even gaining popularity. All models, while flawed, serve their purpose. The purpose of these concepts is to initiate the beginning of a funnel for more mainstream audiences. To provide easily digestible analogies allows newcomers the comfort to begin wading into an immensely deep ocean. This purpose flounders, however, if their own evangelists and the community at large fails to lay the groundwork and impetus to push even deeper. As a community, we fail when, in chasing the mainstream, we lose sight of the original spirit in which Bitcoin was created and bootstrapped. We fail when we are so easily seduced by our own clever marketing and victimized by our own overconfidence that we lose sight of the core principle that brought about this humble experiment and upon which all else continues to depend on we can succeed by remembering it. Cypherpunks write code. And that concludes today's article by Ariel Deschapelles at bitcoinmagazine.com. So let's take a quick break for our sponsor today, and then I want to get into a guy's take on this piece. The Bitbox Hardware Wallet. 
an ASMR journey. For your secret keys. It's safe. It's easy. Intuitive. It looks so good. Black, sleek, minimalist design. It's so pretty. Streamlined, minimalist code. Bitcoin-only firmware. USB-C. Feel the connection. No buttons. It just knows when you touch it. Rounded corners. It fits in places. Save 5% with code GUY. Who's read more about Bitcoin? Go to guyswan.com slash bitbox. And get your digital vault for your digital keys. It's a secret. Guyswan.com slash bitbox. You know you want it. Now let's get back into the show. So I felt... This one was a really good one to start on just because it covers it covers kind of the general idea of that like there's a couple of key points that I think it's really important to keep in mind when we're when we're talking about adversarial thinking here, right? Like the worst thing we can do right now is to get complacent. Is to feel like the battle is won because I think I think Bitcoin's battles, like like Bitcoin's biggest battles, are still ahead of it. And this is our time to be preparing, to be building, to be uh, to be learning as much as we can, to be honing our arguments and learning as fast and as much as we can. Because this is this is still the calm. This is still the the point before we get there. Um I don't think we escape with, I think we will have the block size wars again, except that I think it will be far more serious and I think it will be a geopolitical struggle at the same time that this is going on. Um, Bitcoin is too, the magnitude of what Bitcoin changes is too great for, for us to somehow avoid that, I think. I think we would be insanely lucky, insanely lucky. In fact, almost... Maybe not. Maybe it's an existential threat if Bitcoin does not go through this fight and succeed it, really. Because, you know, when you're talking about adversarial thinking, you're talking about, like, like that's the, that's the beauty of an anti-fragile system, right? Is that only if we think adversarially, only if we actually have adversaries, do we actually get stronger? Does the system actually get stronger? And, you know, that's probably, you, one could actually argue that that might actually be why there is this appearance of stagnation not in the sense of um like bitcoin itself but in kind of the bitcoin culture in the uh lack of adversarial thinking and the overconfidence that we don't have any adversaries right now we haven't for a long time since 2017 and the block size wars we have had no great battle that has kind of humbled us and made us stop and consider man this thing might not you know, something good, something really bad could happen. This this isn't set in stone. This isn't an inevitability. Um, now, one thing I will say is an inevitability, and it's the thing that it's the element of Bitcoin that I think is so easy to get wrapped up in, and um, and I guess have that. I don't know what you would call it, the the faith. I guess in Bitcoin is sound money. We. We necessarily need a sound money to correct this situation. And I think no matter what happens with the Bitcoin protocol as is, like in its current iteration, whether it's Bitcoin 2.0, whether it's something entirely different, I do think sound money is inevitable. I think 
what we have seen in the last 50 years since 1971 is the recognition or the the results of failing to realize that sound money is inevitable. Sound money is the only thing that is actually sustainable. Sound money is the only thing that can actually give real market signals. Everything else, monetary manipulation, is explicitly a manipulation of the metric to make the in an attempt to make the real thing measured differently. It is it is screwing with your ruler in order to get a bigger room. That's not it's it's simply manipulation. That is the only thing that it is, and it does nothing good for the economy in no way, shape, or form. The only thing that it does good for are the people who manipulate it. They manipulate it for their benefit. That's it. It's the only benefit, period. It is to them at everyone else's expense. And it takes an entire degree in economics to to pump the propaganda, to pour the propaganda into your head to make you believe otherwise. It is so stupidly, simplistically true that that is the case. And any other measurement system, any other mechanism makes it obvious. It is only because the broad, com the complexity and the millions and trillions and trillions of interactions within an economy, it is only all, the com all of that like vast complex system that obscures this utterly basic fact. You break this down to two people, to three people, the economic rules, the economic principles are exactly the same, and it's blatantly, stupidly obvious that anybody who is manipulating the money in that situation is just fucking with the, the accounting between who's producing what in this three-person economy. That is inevitable. That sound money eventually becomes the market dominator again, because all of the market pressures are there. The the question is, is there one technologically sound enough? That is what Bitcoin is. It is gold is not technologically sound enough. It is uh, elementally sound, but it is not technologically sound. As a technology in the digital sphere, as, a, as being a money in an economy that is digital, that is an abstraction of the physical, when we do most of our trading is in fact trading the promise of some other thing. It's not, it's not the thing itself. And that's what, that's what gold does, but it is, it, all of its assurances rely in its physicality. So as soon as you are trading something that is not physical, but it's supposed to be quote-unquote gold, all of those assurances go away. It, just, it is not sound money anymore. It's just paper that's a promise for gold. And that, that money, that paper is only as good as its promise, which just means you have paper money. It's, it's no different than the fiat. The fiat is as good as the promise that it will not be counterfeited, that it will actually be sound money with or without gold, and the paper, the paper money, the fiat money that is redeemed by gold or re redeemable for gold is only as good as the promise as they'll actually give you the gold. That's it. It's the exact same thing. They're, they both have promises. One of them is slightly easier to cheat than the other, but they both just get cheated because they're both just promises and they're going to get abused. So that's the first point to, that I really think is worth stressing. And it was kind of what hooked me with this article was do not revel in our victory. Do not get overconfident. We have battles yet to fight and we have so much left to learn and so much left to build. Now, there are, there's definitely 
a good bit of the perspective in this article that I do kind of disagree with. And that's part of, you know, part of adversarial week here is um, addressing where I think these concerns are legitimate and where, I don't know, they're almost contradictory. You know, there's, like, for instance, here there is the suggestion that, you know, we need to push and uh, change Bitcoin as much as we can now, that we should think of it as like a very high priority, a very time-constrained zone in which we can make significant changes to Bitcoin and we should try to change it as quick as we can. Um, Yes and no, because then we're back to the idea of this is a software system, and, and that's, that's another thing, too, that, that he points out in this that I, I think is a really good one, is to remember that this is just software. It's not sound money. It is sound money, but it is, that's not what it is. Like, if you're looking at the actual pieces of it, Bitcoin is software. Bitcoin is software that instantiates, that creates sound money from its software, which means at the end of the day, a software bug is, could be its undoing. Bitcoin is only as good as its implementation. Now, I kind of separate this from Bitcoin the protocol because I feel like the protocol, and this probably is just my definition or my way of thinking about it purely just because it's easier for me. But I think of the protocol less as the software itself and the rules that the software are supposed to enforce. So, for instance, when uh, when you think of the inflation bug that happened, and, you know, just as examples for so those of you who don't know, there have been two potential inflation bugs in Bitcoin, and one of them actually got ex- uh, exploited. One was in um, uh, the first one that got exploited. Uh, they made billions of, you know, Bitcoin that were not actually... To, uh, well, they were technically valid, but uh, because it was a bug, but they were not um, valid by the assumed rules. By the, uh, you know, in legal in legal terms, it was the um, it was to the letter of the law, but not the intent of the law. So that's that's kind of how I think of the protocol versus the implementation or versus the software. Is the protocol is the intent? What? Why do these why does this code exist? Why does the cryptography exist? And what is it trying to, what is it intending to enforce? And, uh, and then the software itself is the actual words of the legal document, right? It's the actual technical implementation of that protocol. Because you can have plenty of different imp- implementations and they're all trying to adhere to this same protocol. And you can have, you know, one of them that's got like 99% implementation like installed and it's the software that has like the worst bug ever, but that 1% can still quote unquote adhere to the protocol, not have that bug. And then everybody has to revert to that 1% software or, you know, just fix the other 99%. So that's how I think of it. The protocol is the actual rules, the, the thing that the Bitcoin software is trying to enforce. And, but the software can have a bug. It doesn't break the protocol, but it can, well, See, that's, that's even questionable because there is a point where it becomes so difficult and requires so much centralization and so much control by some quote-unquote trusted group 
that you're looking at the entire purpose of the protocol being tossed out in order to repair it in the case of something extremely severe. Whether or not that kills Bitcoin by, you know, basically abusing or giving up its very purpose in order to save it. And, you know, it just becomes this scar on Bitcoin's history that we had to pause the network or we had to, you know, everybody had to download the exact same piece of software all at the exact same time to keep it from dying. You know, whatever it is, like basically the, the simplest way to put this is that if there is a disastrous software bug in Bitcoin, it's a very, very bad thing. And that's it. I don't know. I feel like no matter what, you know, software has bugs. Um, like if there was a huge implementation problem in TCP IP, like IPv4, um, we would either upgrade to IPv6, just kind of like forced upgrade, or we would repair it. And yeah, it would be centralized for that period of time. It would be, it would be incredible amounts of control by the people who, you know, basically spread out the, the, uh, the fix, you know, the client that supposedly solved this IPv4 problem. And suddenly we're in an insanely trusted situation in an insanely high stress, high cost environment. And, you know, but, but, but at the end of the day, it doesn't mean IPv4 isn't decentralized after, you know, the internet is up and running again, so to speak. Um, and maybe that's the same thing. That's the same thing for Bitcoin. But just realizing that that can happen. And it didn't happen. It, it happened even not too long ago. So in 2010, uh, there was uh, a rollback. Well, sort of. They didn't actually have to roll back the, um, uh, the blocks like they did in 2013 with the... Uh, with the split, the accidental split between clients, which wasn't actually a bug. It wasn't like it broke the protocol rules, but it just, the two different client, a new client and the old clients no longer were seeing the same things exactly as valid for some arbitrary little thing. And, um, and so they had to roll back, it was like 24, 24 blocks. Um, I don't know, it was like half a day. It was, a, it was, it was really crazy. But anyway, back in 2010, Somebody created, uh, they used an overflow bug and they created like a billion new Bitcoin. And once that was repaired, basically all of those bo blocks were simply invalid. So it was essentially a reorg of blocks that were once seen as valid, but then were not. So they just continued from the block before that. Now in 2018, there was another inflation bug, but it wasn't actually exploited. It was a little bit harder to, to exploit than, the, uh, than it was in 2010. Um, or at least the nature of the bug was. But it definitely could have been, um, and it was explicitly on a, a validation process that, I mean, I only have like a vague understanding of it here, but as I remember it when I was digging into it, it was like there was a validation process that appeared redundant. It was like you, you validate transactions as they come into a mempool, and then you validate them again uh, as they come into a block. And one of the parts of the validation is whether or not a UTXO exists. Um, that, like, does this address that somebody is spending from, does it previously exist in the chain? Uh, and, and so there's like, a, there's like a conflict sometimes if, you know, somebody's getting, receiving Bitcoin in one block, but then also sending that Bitcoin out in that same block. And that, I think, it, 
I can't remember exactly the details, but there was some sort of conflict between the multiple times that you have to verify in that. And one of them appeared redundant, except in this very special scenario. And so it was removed because that validation is computationally costly and they were in the process of streamlining it. And nobody caught it for like months. Um, and it actually got implemented. Um, and that's actually going back to uh, Ariel's first point actually is we need development funds. Um, and I think really the big thing is review. Review more than anything. Like there's so many good ideas and there's so much, like so many coders, like uh, uh, so many uh, developers there to actually build a lot of these things. But, uh, but like, like he's, you know, pointed out the 5.5 Bitcoin, which I don't know what it is now. It might be even higher, but the 5.5 Bitcoin bounty for, um, CTV for check template verify to find a bug. We need incentive for review because I think that's where, uh, that's where something like the 2018 inflation bug that got fixed and it was never exploited. And so it's like, you know, phew, thank God, <coughs> excuse me. But um, it could have been. It absolutely could have been. And in fact, for a long time, there was still a, uh, like it was a majority of the nodes on the network were susceptible to this bug. So like, let's say it was like 60 or 70%. I don't really know. But 30% of them would not have uh, accepted those blocks or would not have accepted the double spend transaction. And the other 67% would have forked off. And we would have had to do a 2013 again. Um, we'd have had to either... Uh, essentially roll back or get them to uh, get them to get everybody who was new off of the 0. 0.4, uh, 0.14. I don't know who cares, who cares what exactly the number was, whatever the clients were that had the bug, they would have to roll back to an older version or install a fix very, very quickly, which if they did not know about this ahead of time um, before it was made public, then yeah, there would have been no other fix other than just go back to an older client version. But herein lies, you know, a huge benefit or a huge argument for multiple impl implementations for using like, you know, Bitcoin knots or um, uh, the Bitcoin or BTCD. I think BTCD is um, Bitcoin J, I think. I don't know, you're, uh, there's, there's a couple of other versions. They're almost not, like, just never used. It's a tiny, tiny fraction of the market. But there's a very strong argument for there. You know, decentralization, not just in the version number of the clients that we're using, but in exactly which implementation of Bitcoin, because it, there's no reason we have to use Bitcoin Core. Bitcoin Core is just the dominant and most trusted implementation in developer community. But I would love to see you know, somebody like Square or um, like some large company, maybe even Michael Saylor, um, funds uh, or us, I don't know, like we could, you could crowdfund something like that. It'd be, you know, the consistency of funds and like a crowdfunding, like donation sort of sense is awkward. Um, but I th still think it could be done is just an entirely new client, um, you know, written in some other code, something that, you know, inevitably there's oh i wish we could build it this way um or build it under this on this code base or something and have a client that is specialized for some other reason or just just to have a competing client that has to 
you know, rethink about the way things are built and redesign it because I don't think that's a negative. Usually you would think, oh, Jesus, we already built this thing. Why do we want to build it a different way in a different code set or a different set of code and, you know, a different subset of developers were re redundant with our work here. And I think that's the opposite of the way to think about it here because the purpose of Bitcoin, the foundation of Bitcoin is all about security and consensus. What you want what you want done is people thinking about how this is built in all of the different ways it can be built and how they would conflict, how would they run into each other, and how will you prevent that? How will you prevent that conflict and remain in consensus? And who knows, if somebody was having to rebuild you know, that part, that part of the validation process and streamlining it, streamline it in a, another set of code, like in another coding language or something, maybe maybe they would have seen they would have unraveled that that gap so to speak in their validation process that they would have had to plug in their own code and that would have been a way to actually realize that this was there the more eyes and the more design and the more thinking the more the more architecting around the code and around the protocol i think the better it's good to have multiple implementations, implementations doing redundant work because it's not redundant if you're thinking about how to do the same thing in a different way to maintain protocol consensus. You're, you're closing in all the cracks and you're building an entire wall around this protocol in multiple different you know, coding languages um, and uh, multiple different inevitably methods. You know, like not everybody codes the same. Not everybody has the same uh, grammar, so to speak, when you're looking at the development process. And it, will be, it would be very good to have a variety, to have um, diversity in thinking at that level of Bitcoin. And that's honestly a lot of the reason why the argument for ossification even exists. Now, Ariel kind of takes, and this is one of the things that I probably disagree with more than I do agree, even though there is a point to it. Um, like I don't totally disagree, but protocol ossification. I do, I really, the longer and longer this goes on, the more I don't see how Bitcoin cannot develop and support a full peer-to-peer -peer financial ecosystem. You know, just with shadow chains and the lightning network and Tulsin liquid for fun i don't see how we can't we don't have it yet because there's not like the easy like just throw the feature in the base chain but i don't see how we don't get there everything that i thought or everything that i imagine man i really wish we had this generally there is a mechanism like like i'm seeing the mechanisms necessary to actually produce that being built out like a decentralized file storage system the process and the thinking on how to build that out on top of lightning seems very simple actually like intuitively simple but not necessarily implementation simple uh, but multiple people are trying to do that like this is something in active development and it basically destroys you know like what is it 20 or 30 shit coins that are all trying, all believing that you have to make your own money to do this, or that you have to have a blockchain, which you don't. But things like shadow chains, 
Um, Shadow Chains, by the way, is... Uh, they don't get talked about much as shadow chains, but I really like that. I uh, really like the term. So, um, but lightning pool, I talk about this a lot, is essentially this shadow chain idea. It uses the same uses the same security model as the lightning contract, except to essentially run an a application or a marketplace on top of that security assurance. So just like Lightning is not custodial, you know, so, or Lightning is self-custody, uh, Lightning has a insurance clause and a punishment clause and you can exit unilaterally. You don't have to have the other party there and there's the time lock to enforce it, blah, blah, blah. Like all the security and the, the model of the Lightning contract, it's done that except that it ties it to the output of, of a single piece of software. So, and that software is anything. The software can be Turing complete. That software, it's completely arbitrary code. It doesn't have to be in the same language, um, uh, the same programming language. It can be literally any piece of software you want, and the output of that can be a hash and signature that ties to your payment and ties to the, the multi-sig contract that you are in. And if you do not like the output, if the output does not appear... You know, you run the software and they run the software and they come to a different conclusion than you do. Well, then you just don't, the agreement just doesn't go through. This essentially enables a non-custodial, um, I guess in this, in the case of like a single service provider, it's a semi-centralized uh, marketplace because they're actually the market maker, but they never actually hold funds. They They never actually, it's not like KYC. So there's, there's a, it's kind of like this middle ground sort of thing, but I think you're looking at something where the ease of stepping into fully decentralized, there's no reason that a decentralized marketplace is not possible. And when you talk about, you know, the, the incredible necessity for review, for being slow and conservative in the updates to the software, specifically because the one truly existential uh, threat to Bitcoin is a massive bug. The most likely existential threat to Bitcoin is a massive bug in the system and massive bug in the updating of, you know, some new implementation. Ossification doesn't seem so scary to me. Uh, now, that's not to say that there are not things that we want at the base layer, that there are features or, you know, additional capacity or uh not capacity um functionality uh functionality that we would want at the base layer um most like the probably the thing that is close to home for me that i feel like is necessary at some point or at least highly desirable and that we would want at the base layer is some sort of fundamental privacy guarantee uh and and there's, there is no guarantee. Privacy is always a spectrum. And, you know, you, you go back and forth between the anonymity set and the, the um, cost savings and all this stuff. Like every, all privacy has a trade-off and there's nothing perfect. So don't get me wrong. I don't think there's, I don't think like we could put Monero ring signatures on Bitcoin and then it would all just work and we'd all be private. I think that would still come with quite a bit of trade-offs. But I think there is something, honestly, I kind of think there's still something in Taproot that... I think I think there's going to be a 
very high privacy benefit out of Taproot that is not realized yet. There's there's going to be something that we can do with it that that essentially, I suspect, I suspect that with Taproot in combination with coin joins and then just signature aggregation in general and the need to consolidate space on the base chain as much as possible. And then as we get into peer-to-peer -peer markets where people are actually using Bitcoin for transacting rather than going back and forth from the dollar, which is really the number one, that is it. Like that's the KYC moat that everybody is having to attach their identity and all of their information to an address. And, you know, with the threat recently with, uh, you know, so many BlockFi and uh, Swan Bitcoin and all these other companies that just got hit with the hack. I'm not sure if y'all heard about this, but HubSpot, um, and it's not, the hack wasn't so bad. Um, it's not like these companies themselves got hacked. It was a company called HubSpot, which everybody was using for some sort of data and apparently email addresses got leaked. I can't remember specifically. I'll, I'll get like the, um, basically funds are safe. Um, even the, I think, even what amount of funds uh, there are. I think IP addresses got leaked. I think IP addresses got leaked. I can't, I can't remember for sure. I'll get the thread and I'll put it in the thing. So if you want to check it out, uh, you can see it in the show notes. But it's a mess. It's a mess. It's, uh, you know, trusted third parties are security holes. Like this was, the, this was a huge honeypot for metadata from all of the users because so many different services we're using this service in order to do this uh, this part of the process. And I can't even remember what it is, honestly. I literally think it was like 30. 30 different like major companies in the Bitcoin space were using this. And this one this one central this one central server, just this honeypot of information, that stupid ass KYC and all the all the relevant information like that's it that's the the mo the movement between dollars and bitcoin are where all of the problems are it's where all of the regulations are it's where all of the kyc is and it's where all the honeypots end up um and that's why i think as we move into a purely peer to peer where we are actually using lightning where bitcoin is actually the medium of exchange and the unit of account that's why i think this is more of a transitional problem because as we transition to that, all of the blockchain analytics, blockchain analytics works because, you know, one person's going from a KYC exchange to another person and then they're sending it to their KYC exchange. So when there's that tiny, tiny gap between the, the KYC addresses, then it's super, super easy to connect things. And then it's also super easy to, to look at the activity of a single set of utxos on chain and basically connect them together that they clearly look like they're involved with each other or that they uh, uh you know regular patterns so to speak um to uh basically tease out with the activity on chain but when that goes from a kyc exchange to somebody's wallet and then they spend something to that other person's wallet and they, you know, spend here and there and they're just spending. They're actually using it as their money to like four or five different places or they're just opening channels and then using lightning payments. And then that other person is sending lightning payments and it goes from 
one person to two to three to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and then in another country on another KYC exchange going to a, a completely different currency, that's where the Bitcoin actually ends up hitting KYC again. But that's going to be a much, much, much more difficult um, proposition to attempt to trace it through all of that. And also, particularly if you're going to and from Lightning and, and or to or from Liquid, you know, who knows what all the involvement is when this is actually fundamental infrastructure that everyone is using, or at least a significant portion of the population, whether or not we're talking about full hyper-Bitcoinization or five or six years from now, where I hope we have an insanely robust peer-to-peer uh, or circular circular Bitcoin ecosystem. Nonetheless, privacy would be a huge benefit. Um, it's one of the few things that I think on-chain could benefit from if we found kind of that sweet spot for uh, something that produces... I'm always for privacy on-chain. Privacy is one of the... I talk about this um, in a number of different episodes, but for the things that matter most in Bitcoin, number one is self-custody. Number one is not your keys, not your coins. And number two is privacy. If there is any trade-off that we have to make between those, you first go to how do we make sure not your keys, not your coins is the top priority. And then after that, the next thing to consider is privacy. And that's it. So all of this is to say, there's, there's actually a line in this piece that I saved. It says, the limiting factor for supporting more innovative self-custody and peer-to-peer solutions on top of Bitcoin remains in the uh, core protocol itself. In some ways, yes, but I think only naively. I really don't think... I think the majority of what we think of realistically now if you're talking about like if we're talking about like all of the shitcoin DeFi, and all of this stuff i think the vast majority of it even as designed is not even beneficial um there are some elements and some it's almost not even like the functional elements to it but some of the marketed description like you know the the quote-unquote theory of these things that we would like to have those pieces of but the whole system is such a mess and it's such a it's totally centralized in this way but we're just going to pretend it's not um and maybe that's just their rush to build something as soon as possible and be able to say look at me i'm decentralized invest in my token because you know it's going to go up in price and they're just trying to make they're just trying to print their own money and they're trying to encourage stakers and they're you know it's ponzinomics um but i am not so sure we need that many changes to the core protocol because we don't want we don't want a huge scope of crap to be done on the base chain that is exactly how you open yourself up to all of the potential bugs to all of the potential gaps in verification that you didn't quite realize or the overflow bugs or the you know, something as simple as there isn't exactly an expected output and the node crashes. Like, that is a detrimental bug. The software can't stop. In no situation can the software be locked up. And if you've got, you know, Turing complete smart contracts, it's just a matter of time 
before you end up there. That's why you have to be centralized. That's why you have to be as centralized as Ethereum. Because if Infura did not have a handle on like half of the freaking network and they didn't have a direct line to the other guys, I can't remember the other name of the other company, um, that's running the other half of the Ethereum network, they'd be in a horrible spot every time a little bug or some sort of malfunction creeps up or they have to update things. It'd be awful for them to be decentralized. They would die if they were decentralized. The only reason I feel like it actually survives is because it's so centralized. <laughs> but going back to the point about Bitcoin, that does, not, that does not mean we don't have plenty that we could desire, that is very desirable to have in Bitcoin. And check template verify is one of those things that is broad enough, but... Uh, restricted enough in its verification that it's a very, very interesting, it should at least be a part of the discussion, specifically because, in my opinion, because of the privacy improvements that CTV um, make available. There's a lot of, it's a pretty, it's a pretty functional piece of tooling, so to speak, in the Bitcoin wheelhouse. And Ariel has a really, really good point that if there was something that granted a lot of privacy that was very useful in that way, it would be incredibly smart for them to simply put up any sort of resistance to stagnate its development, to simply prevent it from getting implemented because of how much it would help Bitcoin, because of how much it would actually implement, you know, how much better it would, you know, provide hold your own keys or, you know, privacy at the base layer um, that would defeat Chainalysis. I mean, Chainalysis, you think Chainalysis isn't investing funds into keeping privacy off the base layer? And how easy would that be? Stagnation would be the attack vector. After seeing the block size wars, I wouldn't any intelligent person would not attempt that strategy again. They would look for something different. The funny thing is that, you know, in the, the very nature of Bitcoin, the very nature of how the nodes do not have a cost, but they are constantly verifying, they're the wall of rules, they're the protocol rules that the miners are actually working for. What you're in a situation, and because of the consensus mechanism, because of how consensus actually arises in this system, you're looking at a situation, and the block size war, I feel like, proved this. You're looking at a situation where a small minority of, but economically important minority, can actually withhold, or can actually defend the whole network from a contentious change. That the consensus around not changing is so strong that the the overwhelming majority needed to change. I, I think it's a situation like just using an example of the 80-20 rule because you know everybody knows the 80-20 rule. I literally think 20% of the network can defend itself from 80% of the network wanting a change. I think the user-activated soft fork and the nature of consensus being the default and that the onus being on the 80% to break consensus when we're talking about a software change that the 20% has the upper hand um and that's not the case you know that's not that's not democracy people talk about like bitcoin being democracy no it's not it is not democracy 
Democracy is a shit show. Democracy is 51% of the population enslaving the other 49% to do whatever they want and to give them whatever they want. Democracy is a disaster. Democracy is awful. It's just legitimizing horrifying things because a majority of the people want it. The only reason we got rid of slavery in this country, the only reason the idea of individual rights is even maintainable is because we were not a democracy. We are a republic. And the U.S., obviously, is my example here. The republic is the idea that even the smallest minority, the individual, the, the minority group, the ethnic group, whatever it is, they have a full set of rights, and it doesn't matter how much of the majority, majority votes against them, there is an explicit and strict set of rules that they cannot get around. That There is a wall that stops them from infringing on any of the rights of the minority. Bitcoin is not a democracy. The United States is not a democracy. It shouldn't be, even though there's been you know, 60 years of just flat political propaganda to make people think that it is, but it is not. Democracy is a horrible system. Some of the worst atrocities in history are responsible, are directly the, the consequences of a democracy. Democracies produce dictators. <laughs> anyway, so Bitcoin is not a democracy. And I don't know how you would compare it to any government system. It's just not. It's, it's none of them. Bitcoin is Nakamoto consensus. Bitcoin is its own thing. It's its own system. And it should be thought of in entirely different like if you think the political game theory is going to work applied to Bitcoin the same way it works to government, then you're just failing to understand what Bitcoin is. But basically, in Ariel's is a little bit of a tangent, but in Ariel's point there, um, he's right that the more fruitful attack vector is to stop good improvements. It's to be a constant push that that allows bitcoin to stagnate and we do not want that we don't want that for another just another reason we're going to go into later this week now uh there is an incredible amount of buzz and nonsense around quantum computing but and i have found nothing concrete it is shocking how little concrete anything you can find about it which usually just like throws my skepticism to the absolute top floor of the hotel. Like I just, there's, there's nothing I can do but think this has got to be bullshit. If I can find nothing concrete, but I find mountains and mountains of hype and claims, but zero detail that just obscurity covered in mountains of hype and push and marketing just says scam to me. So, but we're not going to treat it like that um, because there clearly are quantum computers. They're cl they clearly have done a few things and there clearly is a risk of quantum computing and, uh, you know, elliptic curve cryptography. So just on that alone, no idea the time frame. Uh, and I'm still digging into it for the episode later in the week because obviously in adversarial week, you got to talk about quantum computers. Uh, but just on that front, we need to be able to change that if the time comes. Like, if quantum computers break, you know, elliptic curve, 
I want Bitcoin to have signatures, want to have quantum resistant cryptography in it, you know, 10 years before that. Like, like I want, it makes sense that the cryptography community and the Bitcoin community would be exactly the one to figure that out and that we would figure out how to implement it. Obviously, you cannot ossify the Bitcoin protocol and survive the actual, the genuine growth of quantum supremacy in the in simple factoring, because that is what all of this relies on, right? Factoring primes. And then the case is also there for privacy, is that to prevent, to make Bitcoin as easy to tame as possible, which I think the political system and, you know, Bitcoin's adversaries, Bitcoin's enemies would seek is to tame it, is to control it, is to put it in their box and put their permissions around it. And if we do not have, you know, some key improvements at the core protocol level, at the base layer, that might be much, much easier to do. I don't know if I, you know, it could also really depend on what way we as a community go and how and what we build since there are so many layers on top of this that can obfuscate and continue to take away their basically the panopticon that they have they hope to have over the network but without a doubt it would be incredibly useful to make sure that we are still getting protocol improvements that you know the the base layer should never stop improving and even if it's something crazy like you know when we finally get quantum resistance uh resistant uh cryptography and quantum looks like it's actually going to be a threat in some time frame uh that it ends up being like ipv6 right is that we have this this tethered or this this like part of the implementations that can actually read those signatures IPv6 has been around for, Jesus, I don't know, 20 years? Um, but the vast majority of it, like, it's still, we don't use IPv6. When I look at my WAN address, it's not an IPv6 address. It is an IPv4 address. And without a doubt, even though there was always going to be, even though it was like late 90s, they're like, oh, we're going to run out of IP addresses, you know, 100 billion uh, devices later, and 20 years later, we have not, quote unquote, run out of IPv4 addresses because of the different ways we have stacked, stacked and layered the system. So in that same vein of thinking, uh, maybe, you know, maybe some big change like that becomes like an insanely long and God, is it ever actually going to happen process in Bitcoin? I could easily see that happening. But even though I said earlier, and I generally think that ossification is not something to be super scared of, and I think most of the capabilities that we want in Bitcoin and the core principle that Bitcoin embodies, the sound monetary standard is the most important thing, and the risk of a bug is the most dangerous thing. It is more dangerous than stagnation, in my opinion, uh, particularly if we're in a situation where we want to rush to get you know, new improvements and new updates out and functionality out as fast as possible and we want it to be very broad functionality. The potential for a bug in that environment is higher than it is in essentially any other. But stagnation is without a doubt a threat. But ossification of the protocol is not the end of the world. And I do not think it means that we can't have a full peer-to-peer -peer financial ecosystem. I think we will end up there 
one way or the other. Um, I think it will simply look different and it will have a degree of inefficiency, so to speak, um, that, that we, could, we could avoid if we have the right things on the base protocol. But therein lies the original problem that he brought up is becoming overconfident and believing that all we have to do is stack sats. We need to develop. We need to review. We need code reviewers. Jesus, we need to hire every freaking code security hacker, white hat hacker, whoever, um, to, to beat the hell out of our code. And particularly if we want to implement things uh, quickly, if we want to take this opportunity while Bitcoin is still in its growth phase, it's not, you know, the political system does not believe or is, is not yet stepped in and said, oh, we're going to control. We're not, we're not creating a Bitcoin development committee that is going to say how Bitcoin can develop. We have kind of been insanely lucky that that hasn't happened yet. You know, when has the government ever not decided that they're going to have a committee or a regulatory body that says what you can and cannot put in some sort of important infrastructure within the U.S. economy, within the global economy? The fact that no government has tried to openly and publicly create an environment that forces the protocol itself, the, the code itself, to be some sort of standard or to have some sort of uh, uh, process or limitations on what you can put in it is kind of surprising to me. I thought we would have that by now. At least when we're talking about it in the context of Bitcoin becoming relevant in you know, the Russia-Ukraine situation and the Ukrainian government is accepting donations in Bitcoin and crypto uh, and then the trucker convoy. Like When Bitcoin became that important, I suspected we would already be at the point where the government is trying to really put their thumb down on it and tell, tell Bitcoin developers what to do. Now, obviously, I think there is 100% there's pushing in the shadows that there is absolutely monetary interest that would want to stagnate. Like I said, Chainalysis, do you think they're not spending money to prevent privacy improvements from happening on Bitcoin? I absolutely do. I absolutely believe that is happening. Why would they not defend their business model? And they're getting money. Their, their main customer is governments. So don't, we can't let ourselves think that the fight is over because the fight is just starting. It truly is just starting. We, Bitcoin just became a teenager and now we have to, we have to nurse this thing into adulthood. We have to make sure that when you know, the bully comes and tries to beat Bitcoin senseless, that we are there to take the blows, that we are there with the answers, that we are there with the solutions, that, that we implement them and that we use them one thing that you can do that will make all the difference in the world, and and I know you know everybody. Not everybody's a developer, and you feel like you're useless. Like, oh God, how can I do anything in you know to help this out? You would be surprised how little the gap is between feeling like you know nothing and being like a little bit useful. Uh, and one of those things that I feel like. Everybody can do, and it's, it's something that I'll challenge everybody else just because it's something I put on my little uh, streaks. I have a little app that like 
keeps me with habits. Um, and one of the habits that I have put on and that I'm, I'm happy with and uh, I, I do really good with is learning a new Bitcoin tool, like every two or three days. Just, just go play with something. Just, just make sure, and it doesn't matter, you know, if it's 11 o'clock at night and you're like, shit, I should have gone to bed, and you're like, damn it, I didn't learn a Bitcoin tool. Go, go download a piece of software. Go uh, try something out. Just play with something Bitcoin-related. And uh, read, a, read a BIP or something. Uh, like Anything that you can do to just learn a little bit more or to understand another tool, how something could be used, so that when you're talking about CoinJoin, you're not, you know, you're not talking about it in this abstract sense of all this stuff that you heard other people talk about. You're talking about it from personal experience. I tried a CoinJoin. This is how it worked. Holy crap, the command line was very confusing. Uh, join market is not super user friendly. Is there an interface for this? You just don't have, don't realize how useful something that simple can actually be. Because inevitably, you're going to get questions from the people around you and the other people. Like, that is how knowledge spreads. And that is also the beginnings of, that's the first thing you have to do to, if you're ever going to get to the, oh, I'm a developer and I can actually review code and I know how this is going. Or even before, way before that is, you know, knowing anything well enough to be able to identify that somebody is actually useful in the situation. Somebody actually is a developer who can build a thing and might actually be worthy of reviewing it. If you know absolutely nothing, you can't even vet the reviews of a developer, right? There's oceans of value between knowing absolutely nothing and being a core developer that can review code and be a white hat hacker. And at the end of the day, donating. Just donating to the people that you trust or the people that you know are skilled and you know are adversarial thinkers in order to help the review process, to help the development process. That is something I know we can all do. We can all do that. And honestly, I should probably put up more for core development than I do. I tend to always just donate towards lightning projects because lightning is the stuff I find most fun and it's the thing that I'm playing with more often. So, you know, out of just pure selfishness with all of the toys I want to play with, I just end up donating or like trying to fund little lightning development stuff. But I really should go back to the basics, go back to the core and be like, let's, let's get a review. Let's get another review of Taproot. I know it's already here, but let's see if we can hire somebody to break it. I don't think they'll succeed, but that's the whole point. I didn't think they would succeed in 2018. Then let's get a review of CTV. Let's, you know, add some more to the bounty. Maybe maybe that's not what I'll do. Maybe I'll add to the bounty and see if uh, see if I can encourage someone to try to break check template verify. Anyway, don't get complacent. Don't think that the battle is already won because Bitcoin is ultimately software. And despite everything and despite its history, it is still a beautiful and insane, crazy experiment. It is practically brand new, especially on the scope, on the level of innovation that it is. We have not had an innovation in monetary technology and the conception, the very conception of money in arguably like a thousand years 
I guess you could say, like, go back to the 1500s when the first paper abstractions of value really kind of came into their own. Um, that that's probably an example of it. But Jesus, like, money has been money for a very, very long time. And the purification of that in the digital form is very, very unique. And that is an experiment. And we are not done yet. The battle is not won. And to the contrary, I think we have our biggest battles ahead of us. And the best thing we can do to get ready for it is donate to funding when we can. And I think we're going to be on another Bitcoin run very soon. So we're going to be feeling like we've got a little bit extra, little extra sats in the bag. So let's donate to what we can donate to. Let's learn what we can learn. And let's outbuild our adversaries. Because that is how we will win. That is how we do reach the point of inevitability. So, that'll be it. That'll be it. I probably forgot a couple things, but uh, we'll close this episode out here. And we will continue Adversarial Week with another uh, article tomorrow. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you to Bitbox and Swan Bitcoin and the Bitcoin 2022 conference for making this show possible. And all the audio knots out there, I love you. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.